Hello everyone and welcome to Cody's Car Conundrum. I'm your host, Cody Wagner. Here we'll discuss everything related to the wide world of automobiles, including culture, news, games, interviews, and events. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hey, hey everyone, welcome to the show. I hope you enjoyed the holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. The decade's coming to a close. The decade is coming to a close. Some of the people on Anapamod said, Oh, the Roaring Twenties are coming back. But yeah, the 2010s are coming to a close. And as you've probably seen across the internet, a few publications and people even were doing this a month back. But it's obviously quite appropriate to talk about the cars of this decade. And if you think it's a very big list, it's not actually. And I think I'm going to make a lot of people really, really mad. With the exclusion or or really just me forgetting a few cars that perhaps should be on this list. But we're going to talk about the cars that didn't make it first. So the first car that did not make the list was the Chiron SS300+. Plus. That did not make car of the decade for me. And before, obviously before doing this podcast, I was really trying to figure out and I was debating with myself why this car did not make it. Because it should have made car of the decade. The 300 mile per hour barrier for a what was a semi-production car is a really, that's a huge barrier. Especially for a car that's not basically your Bonneville land speed, land speed record kind of car. That is a huge a- accomplishment. And I, and I kind of, after a while, I just kind of realized, it, I guess it, it wasn't made a big enough deal to me for, for me to care more. Bugatti didn't really, as far as I know, you know, they didn't really tease this. They didn't hint at it. They just did it. Sent it out to the world, they're like, yeah, we did it. Cool, you, you want to go explode the internet? Awesome. It it just wasn't made that big of a deal. No, And no one's even talking about it now. It seems like we're, you know, we've already forgotten, like we're desensitized to it. And that's a bit of a shame, but even I am. It's like, oh, oh wait, look at that really cool thing. Not really Car of the Decade for me, though. And, and that's, a, that's a shame to me. The thing about Car of the Decade, for me personally, is, to put this kind of poorly... There, for me, there there needs to be like some level of emotional investment or or someone overcoming all odds, like Alpine, for example, with the A110, or you know something like that. It just has to be. It has to grip me emotionally. It has to be important to me personally. I get well, not personally, but and the Bugatti should it should count for that because I've been waiting for someone to beat the 300 mile per hour barrier since I saw James May go past 260 miles per hour in the Veyron SS. Now, will, will I call that achievement of the decade? Yes. I think that is very much achievement of the decade. I'm not sold on calling it car of the decade. It's really hard for me to explain why. Yeah, that's more so achievement of the decade for me rather than car of the decade. Moving on from that though, another car that did not make it is the Ferrari 458 Italia. That also surprises me. I'm surprising even myself here because I, I, I still really wouldn't call it car of the decade, but I would call it Ferrari of the decade outright because mo- not Ferrari's most recent designs of like the last two years, but ever since the 458 came out, you had the FF, you had the F12, you had the Cali- what was it? The California T, maybe the, Portofi- the Portofino that's pushing it, but even the LaFerrari. The 458 set the standard. For what Ferrari designs would look like. And I don't think any of us really knew it then. But again, because the, the F12, the FF, the LaFerrari, they all have a lot of 458 inspired bits off of them. The 458 really was sort of like a new era for, for, for Ferrari. Up until the 458 Speciale, quite easily. Or at the or until, let's say, actually, or until the 812. Up until the 812 Superfast, it really was a new era for Ferrari. But I don't I don't really think it's car of the decade. Even though it, lo- it still looks great, it sounds great, it's still pretty fast. 
I feel like that car was a little bit more important for Ferrari than it was for the industry as a whole. I don't know. Very important from a design standpoint. I think it, I, I really do think it just misses the mark though. It's really close. It's really close, but not quite. Another car that does not make car of the decade is the, and as someone who's a huge fan of this car, it might surprise some of you, but as a, but the Alfa Romeo Giulia Quadrifoglio does not make it. It is not car of the decade for me. And the reason why is this. It should be. From Alpha basically being devoid of a lot of truly fantastic driver's cars for quite a while, and then being on the ropes of living and dying, the Giulia Quadrifoglio was a breath of fresh air. And they really, and they did kick it out of the park from a driving dynamic standpoint and from a performance standpoint. However, I think the the Giulia and and the Giulia Quadrifoglio, they they were they've been a bit too flawed. They've been just a little bit too flawed for me to personally give it to them. There's just a few too many issues and and issues that they're still having. Sales doesn't necessarily matter, but in this case, I was expecting them to be a little bit better. But yeah, so it just misses the mark from being considered as car of the decade because as brilliant dynamically as it is, there's a few too many primarily like infotainment and electrical problems that the car has for me to really consider it. So what cars are in the running for car of the decade? The And I, I went through a few lists. Let me say that before I tell you what they are. I went through a few lists just to just to see which cars I forgot. And there were actually quite a few common ones between a lot of the different publications. The Challenger Hellcat was in there. The BMW 1M. The BMW 1M was in there, which I was a little surprised by, mostly because I, re- I just did not think that, that that would have been considered. Although I do think it makes a lot of sense why. I'm, I'm surprised that they considered it, but not completely surprised that it should be in the, that it should at the very least be in the running. But the 1M was in there. The Porsche 918 Spider that was obviously in there. I think the P1 was in for a few lists, and then then it varied a bit. But yes, I had the Challenger and Charger Hellcat though, not just the Challenger Hellcat. Even though even though the Challenger Hellcat came first, I think the, char- the Charger Hellcat was just as important because it, even if they got the Challenger Hellcat right, there was no guarantee that they were going to get the Charger Hellcat right. They could have messed that up. And more importantly. They put 707 horsepower in a sedan with a supercharged V8. That's worth mentioning because not even Ford or Chevrolet did that. And so that that's worth mentioning. The Tesla Model S, as mu- as <laughs> as you guys know, I give Tesla a lot of grief, but I think I would have to lose a little bit of my credentials as I guess an automotive journalist, and I say and I do say that with quotations if I didn't include the Model S in this list. Next is the Chevrolet C8 Corvette. Obviously, because it was a huge step for Chevrolet, and it seems like they have done a really good job. And then, as I mentioned just a little bit ago, the Alpine A110. That was one of the first cars I thought of for, as a contender for car of the decade. It, it sprung out to me so much. No, it has no right to be as good as it is. We'll get into that specifically a little bit later. And then the last car, which I think a lot, a lot of people will be very curious about and will just say that, oh, I'm a Viper show and I had to put it in there, but it is the 2016 Dodge Viper ACR and specifically the Extreme. I think that that has to be a contender for car of the decade. All the other ones are basically my non-Viper choices because if I could make the ACR car of the decade without sounding like a Viper show because we all we all know how much of a Viper fan I am, it, it honestly would be that. But yeah, all, all those other contenders are non-Viper choices. Let's start going through the list and start weeding weeding a few of them out. The Challenger and Charger Hellcat. Well, I rode in a Challenger Hellcat not long ago, and I've been meaning to make a podcast episode about it, and I guess you're going to get that experience here, but it was awesome. It was 
awesome. You know, you get a lot of people saying, oh, the challenger's heavy, it's 20-year-old chassis, blah, blah, you know, the usual talking points against about why the challenger's getting long in the tooth, and in some cases why it sucks, but when I was riding in it, none of that mattered. I barely even thought about that. It's so refreshing when when Chevrolet's making the Camaro more and more like a sports car, and Ford's making the Mustang more and more like a sports car, and each taking taking themselves very, very seriously. It's very refreshing to get into a car that's comfortable, but stupidly powerful, like more powerful than it would ever need to be for any reason at all. And it's not a track car. It's so refreshing to get into a car that's powerful for the sake of being powerful. Getting in a car that's fast for really just for the sake of being fast, even if it's even if it's not as fast around a track. I like to think of the Challenger Hellcat like a Bentley Brooklyn's. A huge coupe, even though the Bentley Brooklyn's is a lot longer than a Challenger Hellcat. It's just a big GT car, or, or perhaps a Maserati Gran Turismo. It's a big, powerful coupe that, while the Challenger's not as much on the handling side, you could perfectly drive down a boulevard, have 707 horsepower, and enjoy it. It's meant to be. It's it's almost like a two-door sedan. Not in roofline, but almost like in the way that it carries itself. It's not a coupe like the Mustang or the Camaro or Vipers or Corvettes are. It's more like, it would be more like making a, really like a Dodge Charger coupe. That's what it's like. So it has the two-door looks, but it's not a sports car. It's not an F-Type, a 911, a Corvette, a none of that. It's a normal, like a Nissan Altima coupe except not terrible looking and actually has performance credentials. It's like that, a normal car with two doors. And the Challenger isn't a normal car, but it sort of comes off that way because it's not, it doesn't take itself so seriously. It is a big coupe. It's not the most capable around. It's not the fastest around the track, but you could drive it every day. It's comfortable, but it has 707 horsepower. And it's so refreshing that FCA decided to make a, a basically a proper muscle car because that's what they did. And so with all the snobs, and I would I would almost include myself in that with all the snobs saying, oh, but it needs to be lied and have you know and have one lug nut like Porsche and carbon fiber this and that. It's so refreshing to have a car. It's so I'm so grateful and, and really just thankful to have a car that made me realize you don't have to go on the Viper end of spec of the spectrum. You don't have to go on the on the proper sports car end of the spectrum to still have fun because that's what the Challenger Hellcat is. It's it's a totally different kind of fun, but it does it so well. It knows what it is and it plays its part exceptionally. That's definitely one of the reasons why. It's not. It's really not the main reason. It's probably like 25%. Oh, we know. No, that's not what I was going to say. What I was going to say was it, it. I finally understood the Challenger Hellcat. I really understood the appeal of such a car like that. It really made me understand why all the people complaining about it, they either just don't, they don't get it or haven't ridden in the car. And say, oh, well, I could get a BMW that's, you know, just as powerful and just as fast. And I rode in an M5. I rode in a recent M5. I think it was like maybe an M5 competition. And that was also a lot of fun. That was a huge amount of fun. And so I get the appeal now of, of cars like the Challenger and the Charger Hellcat and the M5. Where it's a normal car that can also destroy worlds. Because you can you can enjoy it on a normal day, if that makes sense. You can enjoy it. You don't have to take a specific day out. It's not as tiring. It's so easy to enjoy those car to enjoy those cars. Like compared to a Viper or maybe a Corvette or a 911 or a Ferrari or whatever. You know, that's a special occasion. And not that not that that's bad, but that's a special occasion. You're going to focus a little bit more. You know, you're not going to go to certain places because the ride height's a little low. You don't want to bottom it out. You don't want to do any of that. But with an M5, you get 
a similar amount of fun, if not all that amount of fun, but without the same worry. You can just take it out and drive it, and that's awesome, and the Challenger is the same way. It's basically, the Challenger Hellcat is, the, I think, the best way to sum this up so we can get onto the Charger and weeding, weeding the cars out. The best way to describe the Challenger Hellcat is supercar power and supercar speed, but without the supercar lack of comfort, without the supercar discomfort, without the small interior, the cramped footwell, the, the, perhaps the lack of visibility, it's all of that, but, with, but without some of the drawbacks. And that's why it's fantastic. But anyway, and so speaking of the Charger Hellcat, same thing. If there's one other reality that we need to acknowledge when it comes to the Challenger and Charger Hellcat, it's that that spawned a pretty much a new era of performance for FCA. Because Jeep, you know, they always had the Grand Cherokee SRT, Dodge didn't, now, I, I don't think the Hellcat, well, we'll get to that in a bit, but, you know, Grand Cher Jeep always had the Grand Cherokee SRT. Chrysler had the 300 SRT, which unfortunately didn't get Hellcatized, but because of the Hellcat twins, we had the, we got the Jeep Grand Cherokee Trackhawk. Because of the Hellcat twins, we know what engine's going to be in the Ram Rebel TRX. It's a Hellcat engine. And soon, and I could, and I can say this because it was on Mopar, it was on their Mopar Insider's website, we're getting a Durango SRT Hellcat. The Hellcat engine, as it is, has spawned. Well, and perhaps maybe that's that makes them less car of the year, but engine of the year, but or of decade, which is also really, really pushing it. But without the Charger and Challenger Hellcat and without their popularity, we probably wouldn't have gotten the Jeep Grand Cherokee Trackhawk. And we wouldn't be getting the TRX or the Durango SRT Hellcat. And so that's why those both of those cars made it for my car of the decade. Because without them, we might not have any, any of the basically the Hellcat descendants, and so they are incredibly important, I think, to because they, they really, especially with the Challenger Hellcat, just reignited the horsepower wars within Detroit and just shook everything up. It was a game changer, it really was. Even even though I'm, I'm sure a few Ford fans would say, Yeah, but what about you know, what about the Shelby G, the, the late S197 uh, Shelby GT500? Sure. But it didn't have 707 horsepower. Now almost everything's getting 700 horsepower. So again, that you know, the Hellcats—they were a game changer. They really shook the automotive landscape and the muscle car landscape, certainly within America. Then next, obviously, is the Tesla Model S, and I'm sure you can guess why I'm, I've included it here. It's because I really do believe without the Model S, for as much as I get on Tesla's case for pretty much everything, there's no denying that without the Model S. EVs probably wouldn't be as popular as they are right now, especially for automakers as far as developing them and considering them for production, which some publications I think have given a very similar description or gave that reason to the Volt, which makes a lot of sense. But the Volt kind of, I think it went down in popularity, whereas the Model S, especially with the P100D, grew. It really jump-started this EV revolution that we've got going on right now. I think... For that, I'd probably weed out the Charger Challenger Hellcat because not that they aren't important, but EVs I really don't believe were as seriously considered until the Model S came around. Moving on from that, we have the C8 Corvette. And once again, you probably know what I'm going to say here. Chevrolet hadn't made a, a production mid-engine car in, in a while. Certainly not a Corvette, even though they had a lot of concepts toying with the idea. And it seems so far like they've hit it out of the park. So it's pretty obvious why, especially with the price. They did a really good job on the price, even even with options. It's safe to say, not including that, not including, I, in fact, I, I rarely saw the C8 
including any list as, as car of the decade, which is surprising because it's such a monumental leap for Chevrolet and certainly for the Corvette, and it seems like they didn't absolutely mess it up, which they could have. They very well could have and then ruined the Corvette name for one generation. So for basically def defying all the odds, the C8 has made onto this list, which is basically a theme for the next two cars, especially when we talk about the Alpine A110. Remember when we were supposed to get a Caton version of that? Yeah, that never happened, which makes me sad. And Alpine, the engineers and the designers at Alpine had every opportunity, every chance. The fact that they made the Alpine as good as it is, is incredible. If if the Chiron SS doesn't, if I had to choose a car outside of the Chiron SS 300 plus to get achievement of the year, the Alpine would definitely be a contender because again, they had no, they had every opportunity. It, the, the A110 has no right to be as good as it is. It could have been a flop, just an unnoteworthy fling in the history of, of the automotive industry of the last 20 years. But no, but no, they made a fantastic car. I don't know how many veteran and new engineers, veter veteran engineers, new engineers, veteran designers or new designers, I don't know how many of them there were on the team that were designated to make the A110. But the fact that they pulled it off at all, I'm mind blown. I, I, sorry, my mind is blown. Such a good job, such a good handling car, such a fun car from a group of people, from, from a brand that was basically dead and had to start essentially from scratch, all the way scratch. And they didn't mess up, as far as I know, they didn't mess up either a single thing or at the very least, not massively at all. <clears throat> the Giulia Quadrifoglio. If that achievement, because it's basically what Tesla did, except they did, except Alpine did a better job. If that's not worthy of being part of the decade, then I don't know what is. And then lastly, on the list of contenders, we have the 2016 Dodge Viper ACR Extreme as my contender for car of the decade. Now, it's probably going to take a lot of explaining. <laughs> so I'm sure quite a few people are confused because I, I never saw the Viper pop up in, in, uh, Really, in any, I, I very rarely saw any American cars straight up. Not, and most of the lists I was looking at wasn't car of the decade, but like best cars of the 2010s. But anyway, so here's the reason why for me, the ACR had to take, had to take place instead of putting the 918 word. Or at the very least, here's why the Viper ACR is a contender and the 918 isn't. Because if the Viper wasn't, the 918 would be here. But so if you cast your mind back to pretty much between 2012 and 2015, especially late 2013 to 2015 the talk of the town was the holy trinity hybrid sports cars you know you had the bmw i8 which was as far as i remember really the only hybrid sports car of the era or at the very least of that time frame and then you had the holy trinity come out with the 918 the LaFerrari, and the p1 and the thing is not that not a single one of those cars wasn't revolutionary not that they didn't set the tone for the decade because they absolutely did perhaps the nine the 918 especially so but i i tend to believe that we were always going to go down the route we're going down right now, even without the 918, the P1, and the LaFerrari. Now, it might not have been as quickly, considering those cars definitely jump-started jump -started the latter half of this decade, but I do think we would have gone down this route anyway. But of course, that's not to, that's not to reduce the importance of the 918, the LaFerrari, and the P1, because all of them were tremendously important. But even more so than that, they were incredibly fast. They weren't it wasn't like the BMW i8 where it was like, okay, we're going to try out this idea and then it's, you know, it's sort of nor, neither here nor there. The nine, the Holy Trinity, just so I don't have to say 918 Lawfare and P1 all the time, they were genuinely fast. Like really, really fast. Like Porsche Carrera GT 
Enzo, Maserati MC12. Though, how fast those cars were, but modern era. They were the new hypercars. To put it concisely, they were the new hypercars. They were the new hypercars that pretty much every other hypercar had to live up to. And everyone wanted to see all three compete on one track. Which, if you watched the Top Gear episodes at the time, was extraordinarily hard to get any of them to agree on a track. And pretty much anything. It was extraordinarily hard to get them to agree on anything. But that's how, that's how, at the very least, automotively speaking, culturally important those cars were. They really were goliaths in their time they were from a popularity standpoint like cars of the decade they were the cars of the last four years at that point easily and so the reason why i put the acr i i have the acr as a contestant or sorry, as a contender and not the porsche 918 is sort of because of that all of them were purpose built they had they were all new Pretty much all of them were completely and utterly all new and were test beds for new technologies of the hybrid variety, obviously. And Dodge said, and I don't even think they were trying, they were specifically going for the 918, but, or, or really any of them, except for the LaFerrari, because the LaFerrari hasn't run at any tracks that the ACR did, except for that Solomondrian video on YouTube, which I personally, I don't really care about that one. But anyway, at the very least, getting back to what I was saying before, Dodge didn't make a purpose-built vehicle to tackle any of the three. They didn't They didn't take their Gran Turismo Tomahawk, make it in real life, and then fight any of the three. They didn't do that. They took what they already had, the Gen 5 Viper, made it in ACR, and then managed to match. I don't really like saying beat when it comes to lap times because there's so many variables. It's, it's almost pointless. Matched is a lot better. But even then, the ACR matched. Million dollar hypercars, and I know the MSRP of the 918 was like 880,000, but with options and markups and whatever, it was easily a million. A $125,000, because that's about what the MSRP was for the Viper at the time, probably without options, matched million dollar hypercars that were almost, that were almost considered gods at that time in the automotive world. With rear wheel drive, not four wheel drive, no mild hybrid assistance for getting out of slow corners, a manual, a six-speed, three-pedal manual, no turbochargers, no superchargers, nothing, naturally aspirated, no active aero, and manually adjustable suspension, not, not the normal GTS, Bielstein, uh, uh, you know, electronically adjustable suspension or any other adjustable suspension from any other car. Dodge didn't make an, an all-new vehicle to fight two out of the three of them, out of the Holy, Holy Trinity. They don't even have the budget, nor did they have the budget that Porsche, Ferrari, or McLaren have. Yet they were able, with a car that was less, that was, that's still less than a quarter of a million of what those cars cost, they managed to match those cars for pace. The Viper, even the, even with the ACR, as an incredible of a package as it is, the Viper itself is still incredibly down, is, is such an underdog. As far as, as far as technological advancement, all three of the Holy Trinity are more technologically advanced than the Viper are. They all have more power. One is four-wheel drive. They're all more advanced, e even perhaps from a mechanical standpoint. Probably from a mechanical standpoint. I think two out of the three of them have a have a carbon fiber tub. If I remember correctly, most of the Viper's chassis is still steel. There are aluminum bits and magnesium, what have you, but the, but the core part of the chassis is still steel. It does, the Viper doesn't even have a trans axle. It has a six-speed manual naturally aspirated it on paper it looks so outclassed incredibly outclassed yet it matched the 918 and the p1 at laguna seca at the nurburgring not with a factory backed effort but crowd funded 
It got within seconds of the 918. I don't remember. They didn't release the P1, actually. I just remember, they never released the P1's time. But still, it got within seconds of the Porsche. With so much less, comparatively. Didn't have the budget. Doesn't have the dedicated at the very least, at that time. Dodge had to make do with what they had. And they made, they matched the literal best of them. The LaFerrari, the P1, and the 918 were the genuine best that all three of those brands came up with. And Dodge took an existing model that really has no business competing with either three. Don't get me wrong. I'm a Viper guy, but there's no way a Viper, a Viper fights a 918, a P1, and a La, and a LaFerrari all with all their modes turned up to 11. Yet it did. And it didn't resort. Dodge didn't add a bunch of tech into it. Probably because they couldn't financially integrating stuff into the chassis that wouldn't accept it, all that. I wrote an article on Car Throttle quite a few years ago. And I said, I would change the title now because it's, it's a little, it's incorrect to what I was trying to say. But the ACR, in my mind, is the best manifestation of the metaphor or of the saying newer doesn't mean better all those cars had much more tech much more finances put into them they were all all of them were all new all juicing new the acr wasn't it didn't dodge didn't even upgrade the engine from the 2015 model year because they changed the throttle bodies that's why i had a if i remember correctly that's why i had a five five horsepower increase but they didn't even change that they just added stickier tires changed the suspension a bit and added a bunch of aero and a few people would say well yeah but that's you know that's a race car method and you know the acr is basically just a race car for the street of course you know it should be faster but it shouldn't because it's still street legal i don't understand the argument if dodge took their srt well it was srt at the time but if they took the viper gt3r and then made it street legal didn't change any like maybe added the regular interior but didn't change anything mechanically about it even left the sequential if they Honest to God, took their GT3R and made it street legal, and then that car beat the 918, the P1, and, and the LaFerrari. And then people were complaining, like, oh, well, but it's a race car. You know, it's basically a race car. I'd agree with you, because that would be an honest to God race car. The ACR, as darn close as it is, it's not just a GT3R that's street legal, though. It isn't. Porsche, Porsche legitimately could do the exact same thing to a 911. Add huge wings, huge diffuser, huge splitter. They could go for an ACR, ACRian style model, and it'd still be street legal. And it would still basically be a race car. But my point, my point in bringing that up and acknowledging that is it proved the point that you don't even, you can have, look, look, okay, it's hard to explain, but what I'm trying to say is you don't need an Ariel Adam style track car. You don't need to go so far as far as compromising like that. You don't even have to go with the Lotus. Uh, an automaker like Lamborghini, Ferrari, Porsche, could do they could do exactly what Dodge did with the Viper with any one of their existing models, which Porsche would end up doing, but they could take any one of their existing models and make it just as fast. You don't have to go outright dedicated, mid-engine, none of that. You don't have to do it. It's not necessary. And that's what the ACR proved is you don't have to go complete you know, you don't have to go straight to a to a radical to compete with such goliaths of vehicles. The ACR, to me, that whole instance is the is the best modern David versus Goliath story, at the very least, from an automotive standpoint, I can think of. Dodge did so much with so with so much less than all three of those brands, yet matched them with their literal best cars that they had made up a, up up at that point, up until that point. And the thing, it was a Dodge. The Viper is still, it, you know, it was still a Dodge. It was, you know, 
Because Porsche would end up beating their own 918 with the 911 GT2 RS two years later, if I remember correctly, in 2017. And you say, oh, well, that, you know, that's a Porsche, and the 911's a really great, you know, it's a fantastic platform, and, you know, well, you know, they're Porsche. They have that brand prestige and perhaps a little bit of that blind loyalty. Dodge doesn't have that, though. Even the Viper doesn't have that. Not like the 911 has it, though. So the fact Dodge punched way above their weight with so with much less funding and much much less technological advancement. They matched cars that might as well be true, you know, almost like a decade more advanced than the Gen 5 was, even with its adaptive, adaptive suspension, because we've had adaptive suspension for an age now, for a long time now. Those cars, again, are probably 10 years ahead of these, or as far as, as far as really any Viper, as far as technological advancement goes. The Dodger's like, doesn't matter. We don't, we don't need to do what you guys did to, be as, to go as fast as you. And, and of course, a, a Viper, even an ACR, isn't a 918. It's not a LaFerrari. It's not a P1. I know that. You know that. We all understand that. But we also understand how monstrously fast those cars were looking. They were stupidly fast. And what was it? Last year when the 7, 720S came out, I don't know how many of you guys saw that Top Gear you, uh, YouTube video. But Chris Harris pit the P1 against the 720S. The 720S, let's say the time was 134 something. I don't remember what it was actually, but both cars did 134. The 720S was three hundredths of a second off. The P1. What? It has it doesn't even I don't even know how much arrow wizardry the 720S has, but it's you look at the two and you're, and you're like, the 720S is a lot less car than the P1. Yet it doesn't have nearly the type of wings. The nine the 911 GT2 RS needed a ridiculous amount of wings and arrow and all that even the acr did in order to match the p1 or the 918 yet mclaren did that same thing with considerably less exterior arrow additions that's the crazy part though dodge made a car that fast in 2015 two years later porsche makes a 911 gt2 rs a year later chevrolet comes out with the corvette with the c7 corvette zr1 and then mclaren with the 720s and the ACR is still competitive, even from a lap time standpoint. If that is not worthy of car of the decade, I don't know what is. Because even the 911 GT2 RS is more technologically advanced than the ACR is. The 720S definitely is. Both of those, even the Corvette ZR1, to a degree. But still, that's my point. Dodge did so much with so little in comparison to the GT2, the 911 GT2 RS, the 918, the P1, the LaFerrari, the 720S, all of them. They did so much with such a simple strategy. And then you had the crowdfunded, the crowdfunded effort to go to the Nürburgring. And they got ridiculously close. The tires obviously let the ACR down, unfortunately, but they got really close. They got incredibly close. Whereas Porsche basically live at the Nürburgring. I think they have a specific dedicated test facility at the Nürburgring. And the crowdfunded effort got really close whilst being completely and utterly transparent about what they were doing. No trickery, because the Nürburgring lap times are not sanctioned. And they got within a, what was it, about four, no, they got within two seconds of two or three seconds. I can't remember if the 918 did a 658 or 659, but they got within two or three seconds of the 918 and they were crowdfunded. And it, and it was a really tough journey for those guys to... Just to stay at the track to secure funding and the tires like go and all of that combined really leads me to believe the acr has to be carved a decade for me personally it really does dodge achieved so much with their 13 track records and then it, then it went to 14 and then it's gone down a bit but they achieved so incredibly much with just 
handling and aero enhancements on a car that doesn't have an had a it doesn't have an automatic it doesn't have a sequential it's rear wheel drive it has a ton of torque which is it can be quite difficult at the very least for the for the viper to get its power down because of all of its torque but again naturally aspirated rear wheel drive three pedals and it's nowhere near as technologically advanced it doesn't have torque factory it has a you know if i remember correctly a fairly traditional limited slip diff it's a bare bones supercar or sports car in some people's uh, uh, opinions but to think that at that point in time that you could still challenge cars like the 918 the lafarine the p1 with an existing model like a viper like a corvette like a 98 uh, like a 911 that you wouldn't have to make something dedicated and more importantly that you could still go that fast with a manual and match those cars even with a manual with without even four-wheel drive is amazing so we're so with all of that out of the way, where do I lean? So personally, for me, car of the decade has to be the ACR. Dodge did a their wizards for making the ACR that that fast with so little. If I had to choose any of the other cars, for me, it's between the Alpine and the Tesla. Because the Alpine is the same, it's the same thing with the ACR. They did so much with so little. And they could have absolutely messed up and made a terrible car. No one would remember. Just a one and done. But they didn't. They made a fan fantastic car and the petrol head in me wants to give it to the alpine a110 it, i really do because that i'd get that over a tesla because i don't I, a i don't really care for an electric car i don't really want one and b the alpine speaks to me more but i think as far as really changing the industry it's hard to deny the model s a title that it really rightfully deserves even after all of its problems that car not the model 3 but the model s i think really paved the way for getting other automakers to really genuinely seriously consider electric cars and actually try and make them viable jaguar with the i-pace i wouldn't say nissan with a better leaf but with their not not with the cyber truck but then with the model 3 because of course there's been a bunch of electric cars but look at the cadillac elr that was not a compelling that was not a compelling offer for we can make a genuinely attractive electric car tesla beat them to it fisker tried even though that's more like a mild hybrid type of vehicle but utterly failed so my heart choice for me personally is ACR is car of the decade. My non-viper choice for, for my non-viper choice for enthusiast car of the decade is probably the Alpine A110. But I think my car of the decade, you know what? Forget about that enthusiast car. It's between the, the Alpine and the Tesla. Full stop. I really, really, really want it to be the Alpine. But the thing with the Alpine, I think that it's important to realize is. Mazda had been doing a very similar thing with the Miata for 20 years now. An enjoyable, lightweight, not power-obsessed power sports car that was just all about handling. Mazda had been doing that for an age and successfully. The Alpine also very successful, very enjoyable, and perhaps with a few more options and a bit more luxurious, but Mazda had already been doing a similar thing. Mazda had also gotten that formula down and it ought, and it not being overly stiff or anything like that. Whereas no one had ever really made a genuinely viable, a genuinely successful electric car until the Model S came along. Not one that lasted any length of time or one that was on so many YouTube videos, especially as far as drag racing goes, which I know is later on in its life, but still. Or what about over-the-air updates? What about over-the-air updates for electric cars? That's something Tesla did. I have to give it to the Model S. The enthusiast in me wants it to be the Alpine. Where my heart is at is the ACR, but there's no denying how much the Tesla Model S really changed once, after after the, I think after the update, after the facelift, and then after the P100D, it really changed the automotive landscape. It really did. So there you have it. Cody's Car Conundrums, Car of the Decade. There's two. My heart, 
My personal choice, ACR. My non-viper choice, my logical choice, is the Tesla Model S. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. What's your car of the decade? I really want to know. If there's any that I missed that perhaps I should have considered, tell me. Uh, because I was I was having a really tough time trying to figure out which, which cars I was going to consider for this. Uh, don't forget to like, comment, share, and subscribe. You know, follow the podcast here on Podbean or on Spotify because we've been on Spotify for a while now. So if you if you don't want to download the Podbean app, but you do but you used to want to listen to this to this podcast on the road or maybe when you're away, I'm on Spotify. Just type Cody's Car Conundrum. Bunch of episodes are there. More episodes here because I started out here, but basically all the up ep- all the episodes from uh, the last year are there. So if you want to go back and listen, good catalog, you'll be fine. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed. I will see you all very soon. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, and have a happy new year. You've just listened to me probably ramble about some cars, if I'm being honest. If you've enjoyed me passionately talking about lumps of metal on wheels, then why don't you follow me on Twitter at Cody Carr, C-O-N-U-N-D-R-M, or check out my website, www.codyscarconundrum.com, for articles and other car-related content. If you have any questions or would like to become a sponsor, send an email to drtaffy777 at gmail.com and put sponsor in the subject line. Make sure to follow me here or any other platform so you don't miss out on more full throttle content. Thanks for listening. I'll see you all in the next episode.